So we're talking about relationship habits. Last week we spoke on the topic of forgiveness. Today we're moving on from that, from forgiveness to its fulfillment, reconciliation. And it's really, it is, it is a continuation and a completion of that message last week. And at the time I pointed out that, yes, reconciliation is a, a fulfillment, fulfillment or a goal of forgiveness. So it kind of fits nicely together. It fits into a bit of a pattern. So as does the fact that uh, this past week was Reconciliation Week, something that we, we didn't actually work out before when we planned the, uh, the sermon series, but it uh, is, has ni- worked out nicely in the timing in, in the end. So, so without getting political just yet, the, perhaps the application of what we looked at last week, we can look at again today and help us inform how to uh, get to do reconciliation perhaps better than we are in, in every form that it's happening because it seems to me that division's increasing not decreasing in the moment around us. I think you'd probably agree with that. So we want to bring people together. And as Christians we need to be people who are as far as possible depends on us to promote unity not division. And the unity on offer can be such a blessing to all involved if we if we get that right. So I'm going to pray and let's begin. Thank you Lord for our time today for the opportunity to speak on these issues and Lord please guide my words and please guide our hearts and speak to us Lord in the way that each of us needs to be spoken to today because you are our Father. We praise you in Jesus name. Amen. So our principle for today as you see on the screen there is that reconciliation is the gateway to great relational blessing and as believers in Jesus Christ we should be known as people who are good at reconciling with each other where possible. It's not always possible and we'll talk a little bit about that further on down the line but reconciliation can and should be a huge and ongoing blessing and as usual God demonstrates how to do it first to us so we can follow his example. So let's have a look into this. So first let's just define what the Bible means by reconciliation. We'll just focus on the New Testament because that gives us the fullest and clearest meaning, I think. Last week we looked at the Old and New together, but uh, this one tells us all we need to know for today. So we're going to look at just one word in the Greek today, katalasso. Katalasso, which is made up of two parts. Kata, meaning to correspond to or be in proportion with, and lasso means to change. Nothing to do with cowboys, no, it's just in Greek it means to change. So the word is kind of saying this, it's saying to make a change so the two sides match. Sometimes you've got to you know, put a lot of words in between to make it all make sense. But that's kind of what those corresponding change means, is to make two sides match. And it applies to relationships, of course. That's how the Bible uses it. But it also applies when we talk about reconciling a- accounts, you know, bank things, all that kind of stuff. So if you're an accountant, if you know of accountants, they, um, you'd be familiar with the idea of perhaps reconciling a bank statement with a cash book. That's one thing they do. I don't know how they do it, but they do it mostly. So if your job is, uh, is in that area, it's the idea of making two things correspond, isn't it, with each other. So they, they, they agree with each other, they match up. So that's really the concept behind reconciliation in relationships too. Once reconciliation happens, the two parties agree and they match up again so the good relationship can continue. Okay, so that gives us that, that's what we're working with, just so you know, that's the idea. 
So how does this work in practice? Uh, well, that leads us to something we looked at a bit last week. And we are going to recap on what we might call the map of the process of rec reconciliation. Some might call it a roadmap. That seems to be the more common way of you saying it these days, but it's the, the process which is based on how God forgives and reconciles us back to himself. So we'll just look at that again to help those who weren't here last week and for those who may have forgotten and uh, for those who might just need a refresher generally anyway. So it's, this time we'll dwell on a few different points as we, uh, as we apply this, the practical aspects. So what we did, we started out with two people. So we got person A and person B and they are in, in harmony, they're in good relationship. And so in, the, in God's pattern, so God would be, or Jesus is person B here and we are person A. Just to keep that, but we're going to keep this general. So um, we're talking about A and B as people, just general people here. They might be friends. They might be a husband and wife. They might be work colleagues. They might be all kinds of things. They might even be two groups of people uh, trying to work things out. Whatever the situation is, then we're going to get to the point where we have person A. This is real life. Person A does something wrong to person B. And the offence causes a break in the relationship. Now it might have happened over a long period of time. Sometimes it's just a gradual degradation of relationship. Sometimes it's a sudden bust up or whatever it is. But, you know, and it might even that they're both wrong something. They both did something wrong. And the result, though, is that there is alienation. There's separation in some way or another, often physically as well, of course. Now, time passes and person B, in our example anyway, um, realises that this isn't healthy, it's not the right thing to do, so they try and reconcile with person A. So as we saw last week, the first step in reconciliation is forgiveness. So person B goes to person A and holds out the hand, figuratively speaking, probably literally speaking even, and says, you know, I forgive you. And in the ideal case then, person A would respond with, you know, a admis admission of fault, of guilt, that he or she has committed and, and they confess that and that uh, requires both sides to be humble to some degree. That's a key part of it there. So person A humbles themselves a little by admitting their fault. Person B humbles themselves by willing, being willing to forgive and not hold the wrong against the other person, despite how justified they might feel. And now that the issues are resolved, the two people are back on good terms again and they can be considered reconciled. If only it was so simple, hey, if it was just happened and that was it. <laughs> but yes, it, it, now that people are reconciled, that does not mean, of course, that they're all, they are back exactly how it was before and everything's rosy and they're best of friends forevermore. Hey, well, hopefully forevermore, but it's not necessarily best of friends yet because there's the trust that needs to be rebuilt after the breakdown. And of course that takes time, just as it takes time for us to get to know God once we're reconciled and regenerated in Christ. So you're going to see today, I keep bringing it back to the same pattern that God sets for us. That's where we learn it from. But as for the process itself, that, like I said, is, is the ideal, but we live in the real world. And it's very rarely just nice and simple so that one person offers forgiveness and the other person says sorry and then they move on. There are many, many different situations that arise because we're talking about people with sin and believers and unbelievers. 
Do you think the Bible anticipates those different situations? It certainly does. And so as um, clearly and succinctly as I can, I'm going to take us through four of them that the Bible comments on to help us when we encounter these um, exceptions to the rule, I guess. So what is it? How do we deal with these things when, when it's just not neat and tidy? So let's call these the whatabouts. So what about this situation? What about that situation? That's the idea behind that. So the first one. What about when the person keeps doing the wrong thing against me continually? They keep doing the same thing. Repeated wrongs. You know, it's, it's hard to forgive someone once. Well, what about forgiving them again and again and again? And I know where you, a lot of you are thinking, the passage I'm going to go to, and you're right, it's Luke 17, verses 3 to 4. Jesus is teaching his disciples directly, and he says this, pay attention to yourselves. So focus on this one, he says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, there's one day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, in other words, I'm sorry, you must forgive him. Now, is that easy? Not easy, no. And the disciples didn't think so either because in verse 5, the apostles said, in increase our faith. So they realised how tough this was. It's definitely a tall order. So when Jesus is saying these things, that this is one time he said it, sorry, and there's also another time he said it. He talked about 70 times 7 forgiving as well. So we, just, we can't do this in our own strength is the point. And like we saw in the example of Corrie ten Boom last week, we don't have to be able to necessarily experience the feeling to be able to uh, forgive someone. You just have to have the obedience and the submission to God's will. Then he will do the rest. And when you think about it, that's how he forgives us, isn't he? Just over and over. Think how many times we've done wrong in God's eyes. It's over and over again he, re he repeatedly forgives us. So let's try and be the same. That's uh, the first situation. Okay, what about this, this other situ another situation where someone has done wrong to you, but you just can't, it's not possible to talk to them or try and sort it out at the particular time. So what happens then? So do we just hold off until we see them? And in the meantime, we stew away and let it fester inside us and get angry and feel hurt? Well, clearly that's not what we should do. We shouldn't do that. We might feel like it's justified harbouring those, those hurts. We might get a little bit of some strange kind of pleasure out of being the victim. But as we saw last week, we should not be taking the victim stance. That can be a manipulation tool. No, we need to forgive straight away. Or at least resolve to do so in our hearts as soon as we see them. So it's that resolution in your heart that you don't hold something against someone. And... The example I'm going to take us to is Mark 11.25. I normally say, please follow along, but because I'm jumping around a lot today, I'll just show it on the screen for you. This is Mark 11.25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, see, he doesn't mention anything about anyone else being there. It's just you praying to God. So he's simply saying, if we harbour bitterness or nasty thoughts, or arrogance toward others when we pray. Our prayers are hindered, and our own forgiveness is damaged too. So it affects us. So the principle here is easy to grasp, even if it's hard to do. 
Forgive people as soon as you realise they've hurt you, which is usually pretty, pretty soon. Um, and so in a sense that means to straight away resolve not to hold anything against them. So it takes the burden off you immediately and hopefully paves the way for them to admit later on down the track um, their fault when it, when it comes time to talk about it. And yes, you'll, you will need to talk about it at some point because that's what reconciliation requires. We need to be able to sort it out if there's will from both sides. But as far as depends on you and me, we need to put vengeance in God's hands, don't we? There's, God says that in, in the, his word. Because the cycle of revenge and, and retaliation is, is terrible. It's toxic. And if we can look to the Middle East, there's some cultures there built on on some retaliation and revenge and that just goes round and round and each tries to up the next one and it gets worse and worse. So we see that, let's not do that. All right, our third situation is, to, is when the people or the person who have wronged us either are ignorant of the problem or they just go, yeah, <laughs> whatever, I don't care. And just blow you off and that's more common than we'd like but that's the reality we all face sometimes. It can happen when you're in kindy, it can happen when you're at work in the boardroom, it's, it's tough. And in families, of course. But again, God sets the example through Jesus. So let's look at 23, sorry, Luke 23, verse 34. And this is Jesus on the cross. And you might think when you're on the cross, it's probably a good time to kind of, you're, you're forgiven if you don't think about other people at that moment. But this is Jesus Christ, he's amazing. He did think about other people. And this is what he said, Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's famous for a reason, that verse. That's incredible forgiveness. And that's really, really hard, obviously, for, for anyone. But the example Jesus sets and what he describes at other times sort of centers around that idea of love your enemies, doesn't it? He, he lived love your enemies. So to love someone is to seek their long-term good, not their harm. And their long-term good is to be made right with God, isn't it? That's, that's what Jesus was asking for there. So for him to forgive them and ultimately for God to reconcile with them. Which would make it far more likely that we could reconcile with them too, if the, you know, the person we're trying to forgive if they get to that point. So there's the challenge before all of us. And I know there's everyone here, there's, there's all kinds of complex and long-term relational problems in amongst people. But these three examples show the, the heart of God for our, our kind of situations that we face. We have no place bringing down judgment on others. That's clearly the place of God. And if we try and take that, that's um, stepping in where we don't belong and and it never ends well for us. So suppose that then with God's help, we can do all the right things from our side. So coming to the fourth point now. If we do all those things and it lifts the burden from us, we're, we're being willing to forgive. But the other person still stubbornly won't accept the burden being lifted from them. They prefer to carry it. And they're fully aware of the situation. They're completely unrepentant and unwilling to sort it out. So they're holding on to their bitterness bitterness, because you know, it makes them feel good in some way or something. We, we know the feeling at least. So where does that leave us? Well, un unfortunately it leaves us unreconciled. That's the, the main thing. So what does the Bible say about this kind of situation? 
Well, this is the number four of our list of whatabouts. It's that famous passage in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, that we're going to look at. It's, I know that's the one we normally go to for how do we try and sort things out with other people, but especially in a church context. But I would argue that this sets the pattern for all kinds of relationships. And uh, as you probably know, Jesus says there, the, the basic outline is that you go to the person to try and sort it out. And if that doesn't work, you bring someone along with you. And if that doesn't work, then you take it to the church, which is more refer referring to the leadership there, take it to the leadership to try and help uh, mediate. And if that still doesn't work, which you know, um, unfortunately it often doesn't, especially you know, these days when we have churches all nearby, you can just go to the next church and just avoid the issue. But hopefully we can try and work through that. But if that still doesn't work, then Jesus says in verse 17, in Matthew 18 there, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him to be, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. When I was young, I went, oh, that's good. I'm allowed to be, um, to hate the person because they treat him like a Gentile and tax collector because that's how the Jews treated tax collectors, didn't they? And they hated them. But no, I've grown a little in my understanding in the years since then. This is Jesus speaking. How did he treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Oh, yeah, it's a bit different. So yeah, they're outsiders, yes, but they are also in need of the gospel. So what do we do? Well, we keep loving them. We keep trying to reach them. And they need to be, though they do need to be seen as outside the fold. That's the, the thing there. Though. So, okay, so that's how Jesus sees it. So how, what does that mean for our relationships? Well, there may come a time when, you know, the clock's ticked a few times and, the, and all avenues have been exhausted. And you, that, the time may come that you just have to hand that person over to God's grace and stop trying to pursue any things any further. Because you've done all you reasonably can to try and make things right. Now that, of course, doesn't mean that you don't still love them um, and keep praying for them and, and working towards reconciliation whenever you can. But if one side just won't humble themselves, there is a place for cutting off according to what Jesus says here. But please hear me what I mean by cutting off. It's... Um, is there's still a heart there. So does that mean divorce is okay in certain circumstances? Well, I'll be cautious and say that perhaps some kind of separation might be something to consider due to this verse, but always with a view to repairing the damage or if, if there's a safety issue, if there's violence in the, in the relationship. But as for divorce, I'm going to leave you to, to pray through that on your own and maybe we'll talk about that another day. But I will say, keep in mind, marriage is a very sacred thing. We need to treat it with the utmost respect and care and love, which is why we're having the marriage course. So I'll see you there tonight, those of you coming along. But please consider your marriage vows. So the words you said on that day are very important and I recommend sometimes we go back and read what we actually said that day and what our promise was. So in our remaining time today, I'd just like to, uh, to, to talk about what the Bible teaches us about reconciliation in the eternal spiritual sense and see what else we can glean about the topic from that. So apply what God teaches in the eternal to, to the, the earth where we are now. And if I 
Had the time, I'd like to take us through that best-known passage about reconciliation, which is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 21. So that's the one where God's reconciling work is described as, as the reason for our reconciliation or reaching out in reconciliation to others. So again, it's kind of a model for us to be ambassadors of reconciliation to the rest of the world. So taking that message to others. And there's lots in there. It's a great passage. So I recommend you look that up in your own time in your private Bible study, which you can do if you'd like to download it from our website. That 2 Corinthians passage is in there in the study for this week for you to consider and to work through. But I felt though today that God would, was leading me towards more Romans 5 today. So Romans 5, which we, we quoted part of that last week from verse 8, where we saw God humbled himself in the extreme to bring us back to himself. As it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that just blows my mind when you really understand what that's saying. It's amazing. But I want to focus now on the section immediately after that verse, and particularly verse 10. So if you do have your Bibles, this is one place you can, we're going to actually go through. Because it shows us something about the hope and future that we have, which can serve both as an encouragement for us and a great example to follow. The two things there, and it's a, it's a picture of what's possible when reconciliation can be achieved, and it's, it's amazing. So that's, that's the kind of hope I want to leave us with today. So let's have a look at that. Let's look at verse 9. Firstly, so remember, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So notice there's something in there. It says, we've been justified already, but after that we are saved from his wrath. So salvation is a process. So, and verse 10 actually helps us to see more of that. So let's look at verse 10, which we're going to break down in smaller chunks. Beginning with for if. Because, uh, well, I just wanted to note there that the word if is not, a, there's no question about the if. It's not like if maybe, perhaps. It could easily have been translated since. That's the Greek sense of the word if there. So let's say, for since we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So that's our state when we're saved. Yeah, we're reconciled to God. So this is kind of the thought from verse 8. And even though we were in our, in our natural state of rebellion away from God, he gave us his life. As well as he gave his life for us and he gave us life. Which of course allows him to offer free forgiveness to all people, the fact that he gave his life. Which means that if we accept his offer... So that, which means that if we agree that we are sinners and that we need to be rescued from death and that Jesus is the only way to have that, that's a summary of the way to be saved, then we reach that place of reconciliation with God, if, if we believe that. So here, as in most places of the Bible, reconciliation is equivalent to being justified. It's more the theologian's term being justified there. So it's, kind of, it's the idea of being converted, as we would commonly talk about it. Or we can say it's the moment of spiritual regeneration in our lives. So that's the point where God brings us into his family and we become his child. And the Holy Spirit comes to live in us forever. 
So all this shows us the incredible depth and power of the, resu well, the resurrection of God, but the reconciliation of God. His resurrection is full of power too. But talking about reconciliation today. So yes, it's a big deal. In fact, it causes the angels in heaven to celebrate, doesn't it? That's what we hear from Jesus in Luke 15. So it's pretty cool. Now, as great as reconciliation is, there's something bigger in God's plan. And I can prove that to you because if you read the next two words, they are much more. Now, hang on a minute. Much more than the conversion of a human being from heading to eternal death to now having eternal life. What could be more than that? Well, he's about to tell us. Verse, continuing verse 10. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So what's that all about? Dave, I thought you said we were saved at the point of reconciliation. Well, yes, we are. We are saved at the point of reconciliation. Okay, okay so what's this talk about being saved later? Well, the answer is that this is one way the Bible describes that the next part of our walk with Jesus. It's called being saved as well. So the beginning is being is. I have been saved, and now I'm being saved as well. There's that the two tenses there. There's actually three, but we'll talk about that in a second. But in the first part, we're saved from the penalty of sin. So that penalty is we're now declared not guilty because of the cross of Christ. And in this stage, we are progressively saved from the power of sin, the power of sin over our lives. It's our tendency towards sinfulness should over time be reduced. So this is the part of salvation that is parallel to us building trust in each other again after being reconciled. So in earthly relationships, this means to spend time together. It means to talk, to learn how to rely on each other. And in our eternal relationship with God, it's much the same thing. Only one of the key things in it is that God is working in us by his Holy Spirit to make our character more like Christ's character, which means to teach us over time to turn away from sin that still plagues us. Hands up, still plagues us. <laughs> um, and, but God helps us to move out of that more and more as we rely more on him. So yes, it requires the eternal life of Jesus Christ in us, hence the saved by his life phrase there. And I'll underline that for you. This is what we can call being saved from the power of sin and the grip it has over our lives. And the Apostle Paul here says this is much more than our initial turning in repentance. Why is that? Well, because in a sense it's a much bigger task. This is the fathering work of God in our lives, which is a lifetime of relationship, so we go through life, we go through the ups and downs and the, and the struggles and the victories and the hurts, whatever comes along our path. But by God's grace and wisdom, it all serves, by his design, it all serves to shape us and grow us into the person God wants us to be. So it is huge. This is a big deal. In fact, I like that if you have the NIV translation, if you do have it in front of you there, you'll see that there is an exclamation mark at the end of this sentence. And I've got it up on the screen there so you can see the NIV translation because I'm working through ESV before that. But it's there for a good reason, the exclamation mark. It's, it's because if you're a believer, having been made a child of God is great. 
because that's past as done. You're made a child of God. But being made like Jesus is even greater because it's a process. If you look back at verse 9, something else there, it refers to the end of it all there, the underlined bit. When he takes us to be with himself in person, to be rescued from the wrath of God that's coming on the world in the end of the last days, that's when we will be ever with the Lord, as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 4. So reconciliation then is a gateway to all these huge eternal blessings, both now and when he comes. So that is the third phase when he comes to take us to be with himself, whether that's through death or the rapture or whatever it is. So let's take the truth, that truth about God and start to apply that now. That's what the next part of our task is going to be. How does God's reconciliation and our relational growth after that help us in our daily decision making, that, that pattern? Well, for one thing, it helps us to have hope for the future in all our relationships. It should be an encouragement to pursue reconciliation wherever we can because the blessings of a restored relationship can be incredible. And I hope some of you have experienced that, not just with God, but with other people as well. Um, it's, it can be great because it can be better than it ever was before if you can get through the low points intact and come out the other side. Why is that? Well, it's because you've dealt with more issues than when you first got to know each other. That can be often very superficial, can't it? When we first know people and we get friends. But when you go through life and go through all the hard things and you can, if you work through and come out the other side, your relationship is richer and deeper as a result. So in a sense, got a picture of a blowtorch there. It's kind of a picture of the Bible. God is the refiner's fire. He, uh, he burns away a lot of the rubbish that used to be in our relationships and he purifies us. So yeah, that's what God does for us and that can be true in our daily, interac- daily interactions too. Now, of course, as I said before, this one, this does depend on two, th- two sides both wanting to reconcile. There has to be the will from both sides and both being willing to humble themselves to some degree. Without that, true reconciliation just can't happen, unfortunately. That's why God can offer forgiveness to all through the blood of Jesus, but not all are saved and come to the point of reconciling because not all admit their fault and are willing to humble themselves. So people can get hung up on that. But how can God offer forgiveness and it fails? Well, you know, it's, it has to be both sides for reconciliation to happen. And yes, that does work both ways, definitely, because God did humble himself in order to offer forgiveness to us. So God is humble. Jesus is humble. And I know Jesus is humble because if we go to Philippians 2 verse 8, it says about him and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross this is the eternal god second person of the trinity came all the way to us to become human and that's a big step down for him and then he even went to the point of death on a cross so he's humble and yes that tells us both sides need humility to receive reconciliation and incidentally, I thought, since it's the end of Reconciliation Week, you might have been thinking of some of those things. So I thought I'd say my personal opinion here. I qualify that as my personal opinion. This is one significant reason why Indigenous reconciliation is stalling in the political realm, I think. Because we've had Sorry Day, and we should only have to forgive, um, say sorry once, but we keep having Sorry Day. But biblically, 
to, for one side to go, then the other side has to match with I forgive you day. So we need to have both. So this is a fundamental part of the bridge towards reconciliation. As I've shown you over the last couple of Sundays, and I've just got up for you a, a game that's being used in the schools around at the moment. This is actually from our school. I found it as I was teaching here. Um, it's a bit of a teaching tool to help the idea of reconciliation. So I just thought that's I'm applying the patterns that we've learned from our study here to all situations and that's all I'm trying to do. So please, if you're upset with me, talk to me after, but it's okay. <laughs> but yes, there are some really big forces at play in this politically. Uh, but don't forget, God is the biggest force there is. He is a personal loving force of good. But anyway, the point for us in our relationships is there is massive potential for good on the other side of reconciliation, if we can get there. But the only way to cross that bridge in our personal relationships is hand in hand. So we have to both be humble enough to meet together. Both parts need to be matching and the dividing issues addressed to some degree. Not necessarily fully solved. You don't have to get all the way there to start with, but because that can be part of the growth together beyond the point of reconciliation. But the will to restore must be from both sides. So that's all I uh, have to comment on today. I hope that was helpful to you. To you. Please take that as a challenge in your own relationships and to seek reconciliation with those God might be putting on your heart. Because hopefully I've shown you why reconciliation is the gateway to great relational blessing. It's all God's good design and he models it for us in Jesus and he helps us to live it by his Holy Spirit. So I do pray there's something you can use in what I've said and that, that we, as we discuss these things, whether it's connect groups or if you do your study on your own or with your other half or whatever it is, I pray that your relationships are blessed and that we get to know Jesus better and his name is honoured. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your reconciling work in Jesus. Lord, your forgiveness is offered. Lord, and we accept gratefully saying thank you for bringing us together with you yeah, through Jesus' uh, reconciling work on the cross and your spirit living in us. Lord, may he teach us as we live our lives to make good decisions, to be able to have the, the heart to forgive, even if it's really difficult, the particular situations we're in. Please help us. Please show us the way, Lord. And... Uh, that will help us in to get to know you better and to love others better too. So we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.